0: Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. We start the show with a Senate vote that didn't happen. Last week, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he planned to have a vote on the Senate Republican proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. Now, that proposal was sort of a tortured compromise crafted in secret that displeased both the ultra conservative senators as well as uh, the few more or less moderate Senate Republicans. Now, this week, after a devastating CBO, CBO report that predicted the Senate bill would leave 22 million more people uninsured by 2026 compared to current law, McConnell decided to postpone the vote until after the Senate's 4th of July recess. Now, the White House and some others made what I think are fairly feeble attempts to discredit the nonpartisan CBO report, but at that point, the damage was done, and now, it looks to me to be a tough road to 50 votes for this bill, and that's something we knew would be the case from the very beginning, given the Republicans' slim margin in the Senate. So, Jay, what did you make of this week's development on the health care bill?
1: Well, it's, it's sort of exactly what what uh, we thought would happen. And I hate to always just like toot on horn, but, you know, we we were wrong last year on – on. I don't want to say we were wrong on so many things. We were wrong on one big thing. One big thing. Yeah. I'm happy with them when we're, when we're right. Uh, and- <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I didn't expect I mean I think that trying to push it through in in a week uh not having the votes um uh, it 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 was a high, highly 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 unlikely um uh, scenario to be successful in the first place. So um what's interesting to me is and I can I can dispute with you on the the CBO report uh but the the political the political damage of it I think is it is what it is. Um uh, but but it's inter- interesting to me because we've sort of shifted a little bit from a discussion on health care uh, and, and uh, repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act to Medicaid reform. And and really, to me, that's that move in that discussion, I think, is, is healthy because I think that's that's the discussion that's probably more important. and. And, uh, and bigger and I think as as this bill moved along the, the primacy of that Medicare uh, Medicaid piece uh, sort of sort of asserted itself and uh, I so I I didn't expect a, a bill to get done um, I don't know what what will happen now but uh, I'm hopeful that there can be more done on the Medicaid uh, reform front. Um, because as 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 we've discussed and actually last week I wasn't sure which was bigger medicaid or, or medicare medicaid is actually bigger by a uh, fairly uh, well by a substantial uh, uh margin in terms of uh, pieces of the budget um but you know as as a conservative one of the, the biggest uh, fears that uh, that I have that drives people of of my ideological bent is that uh eventually uh uh, these types of, of entitlement expenditures are going to eat up all of the budget. I mean, it's been said that we're a uh, insurance company with an army. Uh, my concern is, uh, uh, you know, if these aren't addressed at one point, we're just an insurance company and and not even a very good one. Um, so,
0: Well, you know, and, and I don't think that that is uh, an illegitimate or an unreasonable argument, but if that's the case, then you gotta wonder why you combine that. You know, if your concern is the sustainability, you gotta wonder sort of the what they call the optics, maybe of. Go ahead and, you know, cutting 800 some billion dollars from Medicaid and combining that with nearly a trillion dollar tax cut. I mean, that just that just smells bad right from the beginning. So I, I think that right. is a big well, and part. I mean, th- I,
1: I said last week, I thought that was tactically a, a really, really bad decision. Right.
0: But- you know, and, and now speaking of tactically, there there's a new Proposal or uh, sort of semi-proposal out there by by Senator Ben Sass, who talked about maybe doing a, a a one-year delay or sorry, repealing Obamacare now, and putting a one-year delay on the repeal going into effect to give the Senate and the House more time to craft a a reasonable, thoughtful replacement, at least based on, you know, Republican, you know, principles and so forth. And he even suggested, well, maybe what we can do is cancel our August recess, because right now the Senate's off from July 31st to September 4th and say, well, why don't we use that time to work on a replacement bill? Uh, I I don't, I don't think that's going to fly. President Trump suggested in a tweet that that seemed like a good idea, but I don't think President Trump really knows a whole heck of a lot about health care in the first place or the legislative process. But, but in any case, I think that's, you know, that's one thing that's being, considered because pretty clearly I think it's it's obvious to me at least that the Senate is trying to do too much too quickly with too small of a majority to get it through.
1: I know I would no, absolutely agree with you on that. Um and the I'll tell you the more I see and hear from uh, Ben Sass, the more I like him. Um I will I will make a bold prediction uh right now uh that sometime within the next Twelve years, uh, Ben Sass will be a presidential candidate. Um, that seems,
0: so that, that actually. Again- that actually seems pretty reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I, I think that there's definitely uh, something to that. I would not be surprised at all. Hey, you know, before we continue on with this healthcare discussion, we want to thank our first sponsor for today, Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door with Dollar Shave Club. Now, I know that a number of Politics Guys listeners have already checked out Dollar Shave Club, and they've told us that they're really glad they did. And Seriously, if you shave, and you, you probably do, uh, you owe it to yourself to stop throwing away money on gimmicky blades from companies that pour tons of your money into over-the-top ad campaigns, uh, naming rights to football stadiums that will remain nameless, and all that other stuff that just doesn't matter. You know, what does matter is a great shave at a great price, and as a Dollar Shave Club user, I can tell you that's exactly what you're going to get. Plus, it's way more convenient to have blades and their excellent shave butter delivered right to your door automatically than to have to remember to buy blades and shaving cream and then schlep out to the store to get all that stuff. Uh, Jay, now I know you're also a Dollar Shave Club user. Uh, What's your experience been?
1: Well, I am, and I'll tell you, I'm a a fiscal conservative, uh, and also in order to keep up my uh, credentials as a clean-cut member of the Republican Party, Uh, I need to uh, look sharp and can't go around uh, being all uh, like some scruffy-looking hippie. That's right. So uh, a dollar shave uh, uh, satisfies both of those those needs for me. Uh, I get a a great clean shave, and uh, I, I save a lot of money doing it.
0: Yeah. And you know, for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor, the executive razor. That's their best one, obviously, with a tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping. And after that, your razors are just a few bucks a month. It's a $15 value for only five bucks. And in that first month's box, you get that great weighty executive razor handle, a a full cassette of four cartridges and a tube of their shave butter. And after your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price, no hidden fees, no commitments. Cancel anytime you like, but you won't even want to think about canceling once you see what a great shave you get and how much you save. And you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Okay. So back to the healthcare issue, you know, there are a couple things that, that I, that I felt are worth pointing out about this. Number one, uh, you know, on the whole secrecy thing, you remember a couple of weeks ago, that was a big story about this was being done in secret. And I think it's pretty clear that this was much ado about nothing or about very little, because what ended up happening, well, you know, it went public. Of course, it had to before a vote, and people reacted, Uh, and it was, you know, it it was a relatively short, it still is a relatively short piece of legislation, 142 pages, I believe, and so in this case, I think, I I, I sort of think that uh, Mitch McConnell was right, and was justified, and it made sense, and so this is a case where I'd say the media overreacted to the whole secrecy thing. I think they were just looking for a story, you know, and they picked up on the secrecy thing and it's much ado about nothing. But more to the point of- I'm I'm glad you said that, but okay, go ahead. Well, you know, more to the point of sort of what this whole thing feels like to me, it really feels much more like some combination of getting a win or dismantling President Obama's biggest achievement rather than actually conservatives, Republicans sitting down and actually saying, okay, what is our vision for healthcare? What would a coherent policy that embodies conservative principles to make this part, this huge part of the economy uh, and this, this hugely important thing better for millions and millions of Americans? I don't think that, uh, that Republicans in Congress have really had that conversation. And uh, that's why I think this has been a disaster because it's not guided by conservative principles, which I may disagree with. I certainly do in a lot of cases, but at least they're, you know, their principles. Uh, there's, there's something there. This, I think, is just some big mess designed to say, well, what can we cobble, get, cobble together to get 51 votes? If you want to talk about a recipe for awful policy, there you go. Um, well, two things. First
1: on the, this is more the procedural thing, about st- bills being drafted in, in secret. Uh, again, this is something I can speak to from, from some pretty substantial experience. But to some extent, all, all bills are drafted in secret. Uh, I mean, because that's, that's how you, you write things. Uh, I mean, the, the Declaration of Independence was drafted in secret. Um, uh, you know, war and peace was drafted in secret. Uh, you, you, you simply, you, have to, someone has to sit down and write the the first draft, and the way this this works practically uh, is that you have committee staffs who who you know cobble together. You know, here are the ideas what we want, and they translate them into what will be the the codified language. Uh, and along the way, people come in and say, Hey, I've got this idea. I've got this idea. Uh, that may not happen, you know, outside in, the, in a open committee process, but it it still happens. You're getting input from from various sources, and it, again, you you write those those pieces uh, into the the codified language. And that, I mean, so so of necessity, uh, most legislation is crafted. At least the first draft is, you know, some secret, but it always it. As again, as part of the constitutional process, comes becomes public. So, yeah, I would agree that the the media hype over the secret bill uh, uh, was uh, was just that. Now, going to the substance of the thing, um, yeah, I think you're right. Con- the conservatives and Republicans don't have a clear vision of 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 what they want healthcare policy to be. They have a vision of well, not this. Um, uh, I, I would disagree with you to the extent that it's a matter of oh, we just want to dismantle. Obama's uh, achievement I think there is a, a real need of, of this Obamacare is not sustainable and I think a lot of Democrats admit this this too it, it's not sustainable in its current form so something has to be done so I, th- I think there's more to it than just saying oh we want to uh, sort of score a political point by sticking sticking it to President Obama on this but uh, uh, that said there there is not a, a vision uh, I think, as as, uh, as George Bush would uh, senior would have said, um, the vision thing is lacking.
0: Well, you know, a couple points on that not sustainable thing. I agree and disagree with you on that. I uh, like a good, I guess, social scientist. Uh, but the the point where I agree is, I think yes, you're right that that even most reasonable Democrats would say that there need to be some changes made, some alterations made to make this a better, more sustainable policy, you know, and people have been saying that reasonable people, I think have been saying that pretty much. Well, the, I mean, the
1: the the problem is, I mean, it's becoming more and more difficult for, and this is more not in the Medicaid area of it, but the the, the uh, private market. Well, that's where I know, disagree the, with you. That's where, you, where I disagree you're with you. One provider in a lot of places.
0: Yeah. That's where I disagree with you. I think okay. now it's certainly, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, every major policy, you can't expect it to be right, Right out of the box, you're going to need to make changes, make tweaks. You you learn from experience, you know, and 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 you make changes. That's ideally how policy works. It's an, it's an iterative process, but we don't have a political system that allows us to do that as much as we would, as much as anyone would like. But in terms of the uh, unsustainability, the death spiral thing, that has been way overblown, and the biggest cause of that has been president trump and senate republicans i mean the reason why with the reason why insurers are so freaked out and they're pulling out is they're saying well what's going on here well we're not going to get you know we don't know what the future of this is it's like it's like it's like burning it's like setting fire to your house and saying hey this is dangerous we better get out i mean it's, it's just ridiculous but but in any but, case but but of course i mean that that
1: sort of that that sort of goes to the problem of look um, if this was workable and self-sustaining, they wouldn't need subsidies in the first place.
0: Well, it seemed to me it's it's like that old Vietnam thing of we must destroy this village to save it. I mean, I, I but anyway, you know, there's other thing I wanted to talk about is there are some people suggesting that well maybe there's a possibility for some sort of a bipartisan deal here where 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 maybe they could sort of take the Rand Pauls and kind of put them to the side and maybe try to work something out with the uh, the few somewhat more conservative Democratic senators now. I think that in some level that would be a great idea, but I also think it's pretty much a, a, a pipe dream, you know, but
1: still. I agreed. Not, not going to happen. I, I, I would, I would say, look, there's a possibility that maybe, you know, if you have to, if you're going to, you know, close, so close to 51 votes and you uh, you have to lose a Rand Paul or someone like that, maybe you pick up a, a Joe Manchin or something like that. Uh, but I, I, I don't see, I don't see a, a, much broader coalition of a bipartisan thing. I think maybe you get, maybe you pick up a defector or two uh, from a, a red state.
0: But, but you know, if, if president Trump were the bold, adventurous deal making closure that he wants everyone to believe he is, he would do something like calling, say the half, uh, saying, say like half a dozen or so of the most conservative Senate Senate Democrats into the White House and trying to work out something with them, something along those lines. You know, it goes back to a Facebook post I made earlier in the week about my just crazy idea, hope, uh, uh, looking for a silver lining, that Trump might actually not be so ideological, might not necessarily just be led around by the nose, you know, receptive to whoever said the last thing that he heard, but, but no, he can't be bothered to think about issues. He can't be bothered to even master the rudiments of policy. You know, he apparently he's too busy watching Fox and friends and taking shots at morning Joe hosts. That that's what seems to animate him. And that, you know, it's, 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 it's a pretty bad company. He may be the laziest president in our lifetimes.
1: Well, I, I, I can't disagree on, on, on a lot of that. I mean, I think if this were a, uh, again, most any other president, uh, who would, who has a sort of, you know, let's call it a historic opportunity, especially again, the Medicaid reform piece, uh, uh, you know, it, it's almost reminiscent of, of, uh, welfare reform with, uh, Bill Clinton back in the nineties. Uh, there is an opportunity actually to to do something here and, and get something done if he were to, were to bring in some people and, and tackle bits and pieces of it. But, uh, I think, it fails for a couple reasons one he's he's such a polarizing figure to the left uh, there aren't that many uh, Democrat senators that he could he could reasonably pull in I'm, I'd have to you know look at the map as whos who's up for election next week but but a lot of these these uh, uh, senators from you know deep blue states uh, it's not going to make a difference too and uh, there will be no benefit. Uh, to them, in any sort of a deal, other than to say, "Look, it's for the betterment of the country," and that's not always a great uh, a selling point for these folks, um, right? Uh, you know, this is sort of a, a little bit of a separate issue, but I, again, just the the attention deficit disorder Trump presidency uh, that that we've talked about so much it, it's it's really starting to hurt here. Um, I was going to make my list of of here's like twenty tweets that the president could put out that would actually be really meaningful and helpful. Um, maybe I'll, I'll write that up and post it on Facebook at some point. But uh, but going after uh, the Morning Joe host was, was not one of them. Yeah
0: yeah he just can't help himself you know before we, before we move on to our next story i want to thank our second sponsor for today seatgeek a great low cost super convenient way to buy tickets for live events with seatgeek you can find the best seats at the best prices it's fully guaranteed and it only takes a few taps on the app or a few clicks if you access it through their website seatgeek.com now i've got the app and i use it on my computer as well and wherever i use it it lets me know what's going on in my area gives me all sorts of recommendations tailored specifically to my interesting musical interest. Uh, just recently, he told me that Willie Nelson is coming to town. Now, I don't know how I've managed to live this long and never see Willie, Willie Nelson. I, I don't even know how, know how Willie Nelson has actually managed to live this long, but another issue, but, but now, <laughs> not to you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> thanks to, thanks to SeatGeek, I can rectify this musical shortcoming of mine. And and a few days after that, a group I remember very fondly from my youth, Huey Lewis and the News, they're still together, believe it or not, they're still in town. And, I wouldn't have known about any of this if it hadn't been for SeatGeek. Plus, with SeatGeek, you can get updates on whatever venues, events, performers you want to keep track of. You can even connect it up with Spotify, your music library, Facebook to get notifications about artists that you listen to and that you follow. Though you can turn that off really easily if you'd rather not get notifications. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar, only if you want. Now, best of all, Politics Guys listeners, you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code POLITICSGUY. That's all one word and no S, just plain POLITICSGUY today. That's promo code POLITICSGUY for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Okay, moving on, you know, Jay, June is always a big month for the Supreme Court, right? Uh, They're they're announcing their their big decisions before they're getting ready to close up shop for the summer before the first Monday in October when they start up again. But our first Supreme Court story today, we've got two of them. This one isn't about a case the court has ruled on, at least not yet. This week, week, the Supreme Court partially lifted the injunction the Fourth and Sixth Circuit Courts imposed on President Trump's travel ban and said that it would hear the case in October at the beginning of its next term. Now, three of the justices, Thomas, Leto, and Gorsuch, were in favor of lifting the injunction in its entirety, but the majority ruled that the ban could not be imposed on anyone with what they termed to be a credible claim of a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. The dissenters argued that this was an unworkable standard that would lead to, in Justice Thomas's words, a flood of litigation, which is a prediction that already seems to be coming true. Uh, So, Jay, what did you think about the partial lifting of the injunction and the court deciding to hear the case in October?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I characterize it as a mostly lifting of the injunction. Uh, Really, what what the court said is uh, the injunction will still apply to, well, a couple of the plaintiffs who are still there and similarly situated to plaintiffs and again those are or those are people with ha- who have some sort of uh, relationship here that they've got a, a, a familial uh, pre-existing uh, uh, right to be here or contractual right to be here um, and the court cautioned against uh, actually uh, other plaintiffs trying to jump in trying to create new relationships to jump in to become new plaintiffs uh, the biggest part of this was this was a per curiam decision. Um, in other words, the, the the court struck this down uh, more or less unanimously. Now there were three dissenters uh, who would have struck it down more. I guess is probably the, the best way to put it. Um, but but the 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 reinstatement of the, the travel ban essentially uh, for for most people was. Supp- Awarded by unanimous Supreme Court, and that includes uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, that includes uh, Elena Kagan, uh, that includes uh, the uh, the Mexican judge. Uh, um, I'm I'm kidding, of course. uh, S- uh Sotomayor is, is not Mexican; she's very American. But I'm, I'm just saying, as, as Trump might refer to her. Um, but I mean that, and that is a a big statement, and also significant to me was there was no discussion. Uh, of this uh, uh, piece on the success, of the success on the merits relating to Trump's campaign statements, which is, had been a big piece of what the lower courts based their rulings on. So I, I think this is a, a pretty big deal and I think it also sets up an argument for uh, when we get to uh, the next term, uh, whether or not this, this case may be moot altogether because by that point, the uh, three-month ban will have uh, expired So I mean, this is this is I mean, uh, this was a win for Trump.
0: Well, it was it was I would say it's certainly mostly a win, yeah. But but I would largely agree with you. You know, I wanted to talk about that issue of why even the. Most liberal justices, right, were on board with at least partially lifting uh, lifting the injunction. And I think it goes to right, a couple of things. One is that there's this presumption that the president has broad authority when it comes to to, to carrying out the uh, national security policy and and protecting uh, residents of you know the United States from from all threats, foreign and domestic. But a second thing I think also goes to this idea that just because something is a colossally bad idea doesn't automatically make it unconstitutional. Uh, Donald, Trump is, Donald Trump has proven <laughs> that he can do a lot of stupid things that are well within the Constitution. I think this travel ban is partially that. I think you know, uh, sort of along the lines of what the court seems to be, a majority of the court seems to probably be okay with, I think you could craft the ban Based on that, that would pass constitutional muster. That would still be a really bad idea. Uh, but we've talked about this a time and time and time again, and it, it just makes me nuts where people it always just
1: bears repeating. Yeah,
0: you know, sure. Well, because well, it's just one of my pet peeves where just because it's a horrible policy idea, it is you know awful to people, doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional. And I want to you know I want to make that clear. So. But, you know, another thing I want to point out is, and why I think this is such an idea, a bad idea, uh, there's this study that's been talked about recently from the Cato Institute, and you know the Cato Institute, Jay. I do. They're yeah. good, good libertarian. Yeah. Groups. They are no, they are no big, you know, hippie liberal kind of group. And according to their study, no American has been killed by terrorists from any of the six countries named in the ban since 1975. It's nearly 42 years. So I, I think this is a bit of uh, anti-mu- anti-Muslim anti security theater. That's, that's an awful idea. And, and I hope as much of it as possible is, is struck down. But again, I don't think it's entirely, depending on how you set it up entirely unconstitutional. It seems to me also that in October, when they do hear it, we basically have three to four justices who would be pretty much for striking it down, maybe in its almost in its entirety. Uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, Breyer, and you got those three for upholding it probably in its entirety. Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, which kind of puts Kennedy and Roberts kind of in the middle as the potential deciders. Cause remember Roberts has d- disappointed conservatives on more than a few big case occasions in the past. So how do you well, see this? I, I, yeah, first, um, I, I would,
1: yeah, I would say, I I, I don't think, uh, I'm not sure that, that you've got, uh, the three liberals really, uh, in, in the, uh, in the bag for, uh, uh, striking it down because look uh I think uh justices uh, Kagan Sotomayor, and uh Bader Ginsburg, uh you know, first of all they're all much smarter than us well, not much yes. smarter but, we'll, we'll um, <laughs> but, but, but look they're Supreme that. Court justices and and they, they've they've dealt with this stuff and they're well aware of the, the same things that we just said that there are plenty of uh, policies out there that may be uh, uh useless uh unhelpful or just downright stupid but uh, but that doesn't make them unconstitutional. Uh and, and I am hopeful that uh, those three will look at this in terms of the the bigger picture where we we're talking about uh, uh relative powers of the various branches of government and and you know hue to the the long long standing um, uh, precedent that the executive has very broad authority uh, in areas of national security. Um so I, I think that's I, I really you know assuming the case even goes forward and, and isn't uh, isn't moot, uh, I I think um, I think it'll be it'll be upheld even you know even if you have some and, and perhaps they may uh, write uh, concurring and and you know go on about how it's it's a bad idea, and I I don't disagree that it's a bad idea and uh, there's it was an unnecessary again like so much of what Trump has done an unnecessary distraction, uh, but the importance of uh, maintaining the, the power of the executive uh, in national security matters I, I think is going to uh, going to prevail
0: yeah and now in the interim until that ruling which won't come until well at least as if it's going to be heard in October you know after that point so uh, in the interim it seems just what justice Thomas suggested is happening, what happened is happening, right? The administration is is uh, interpreting bona fide relationship in the most narrow way it possibly can. Of course it would, because it wanted the, the whole entire ban. And so we're seeing lawsuits by people who want to interpret in what I think is a more reasonable or sometimes maybe not quite a more reasonable way. And so he's absolutely right about that. And I think we're just going to see, keep on seeing more and more of these lawsuits until the court finally uh, gives some sort of definitive ruling on this. Okay. Yep. All right. Moving on to our next story, also a Supreme Court story. Um, Early in the week, the court ruled that in certain instances, states must provide aid to religious groups, even if that state's constitution sets up a strict separation of church and state. Now, in the case... Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. This involved a Missouri playground safety program, uh, basically like uh, putting down that soft stuff on the playground that we didn't have when we were kids, you know, cause we were tougher back then. But anyway, you know, it seems like a good idea. All right. And one of the highest ranking applicants for these limited funds was Trinity Lutheran Church, but the state rejected their application because their religious organization and under the way the law was written for this, they were not eligible for funding. Now, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote for the seven justice majority, argued that the law was an unjustified government discrimination against churches. Justice Sotomayor, who authored the dissent, which was joined by Justice Ginsburg, uh, she actually read this dissent from the bench, which is generally a sign that they're fairly you know, upset with the majority opinion. Uh, and in this dissent, she argued that the majority was announcing a profound change in church-state relations by by holding that the Constitution requires that the government provide funds directly to a religious organization. So, Jay, do you think the majority got it right here?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, and first of all, I, I characterize this a little bit differently than you did as far as uh, requiring uh, the government to uh, uh, expend funds for a religious organization. What it, what it does is it, it removed the sort of categorical bar, uh, from religious organizations for receiving government funds for what are non-religious purposes. Uh, in this case, you know, putting stuff down on the playground. Um, you know, it, it, this does not compel the government to, uh, to spend money on, on, um, uh, any sort of, uh, group that, uh, or, or or allow money to go to any sort of group that uh, has a religious agenda, and it doesn't change anything from the other First Amendment jurisprudence in that uh, you know obviously still the government can't uh, spend money on activities that will uh, are are designed to to uh, uh, preach to proselytize uh, or activities that would un- unnecessarily uh, entangle the government in religion. Um, so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't change our, the the fundamental First Amendment jurisprudence on on that, which I think is 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 good. Uh, and it it what it does is knocks out what were called uh, Blaine amendments uh, that these were state laws that were passed at the beginning of the century, uh, largely anti-Catholic uh, in in uh, animus um, uh, that were passed in various states, uh, and and sort of says that no, you you know these these were specifically designed to prevent uh you know they're opposing catholic catholic schools at that time um so I, I think it's it's a good decision uh i think the majority gets it right uh, uh i i don't think it's a tremendous groundbreaking uh, change uh, and it's actually pretty consistent with uh, uh earlier jurisprudence on issues like school vouchers and so forth that well, yeah you
0: know, uh, I- look there's a, a you know I, I, want, I want to make Go a ahead. point about that whole direct versus indirect thing. Uh, now, it, there was this 2004 Supreme Court decision and Locke versus Davy involved uh, uh, Washington, the state of Washington. Uh, they offered college scholarships to all students except students who were pursuing a degree in uh, devotional theology And uh, the court said that that was fine. And just, in fact, Chief Justice Roberts mentioned this case in his majority opinion, saying that playgrounds were a different thing. And that gets to your point about direct versus indirect support, though. You know, I I think that the point that Justice Sotomayor makes and the one that. I don't know. I'm entirely convinced by, but I'm certainly at least somewhat sympathetic to is this idea that there's really no such thing as non-religious funding to a religious organizations because, you know, playgrounds themselves may certainly not be religious in their nature. But a fund, that money that you get to fix your playground or improve your playground can potentially free up funds for more avowedly religious purposes. And so it becomes really kind of mushy. So I can, again, I don't know that I'm entirely convinced by that argument, but I certainly think that there's there's something there to, to consider, at least to give one pause. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that, Jay.
1: Well, you know, look, I, I get the idea that all money is fungible. Uh, that's that's always an issue in funding anybody. Um, I could we you know flip it the other side and say, okay, you know, whatever Planned Parenthood can, Planned parent could get money, but it's not for abortions. Uh, and again, money's fungible, so yes, they can take from one pot and put in another. Um, in this case, though, it's it seems that the the law that, that was struck down uh, is is in and of itself aimed at, um, uh, discrimination against, uh, religious groups. Uh, it's, it's saying here is a benefit that will can apply to, uh, any organization that applies. Oh, unless you're religious. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's problematic. And, and I guess I, I understand sort of my, I understand what she's saying. I, I disagree with it. Uh, uh, that what we have here is a direct benefit as opposed to, for example, I mentioned the voucher cases where in that case it's money goes to the parents who then spend it, uh, at a religious institution. Uh, uh, this, this actually, the, the, the check reads, you know, payable from the federal government to, uh, St. whoever, you know, or Trinity Lutheran. Um, so yeah, I, I, guess, I guess there's, there's some distinction there. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I I don't see that. I don't see that as as a problem of encroaching on the 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 the, the boundaries between uh, state and uh, and uh, uh, church.
0: You know, I think another interesting aspect of the dissent was uh, Justice Sotomayor was kind of making a states' rights argument in a way. She argued that essentially states should be allowed to make their own judgments about whether to support religious groups. And I thought, wow, that's not usually an argument here uh, from the from the left. There uh, and again. It's one of these things where I I have obviously some sympathy for that, but it just felt to me I probably would have sided with the seven-member majority because while I, I understand these arguments and I think Justice Sotomayor raised some important points on the whole, and I think with a lot of cases the Supreme Court deals with, you know, you're dealing with very important conflicting values, and these aren't easy cases. And, and I think this is the case where you know there are certain certain issues and certain problems. And I'm glad that that Justice Sotomayor joined by uh, Justice Ginsburg at least you know brought these to light. Though I think the majority in the end made the right decision. All right. Uh, before we get to it, I, I okay. Fl-
1: oh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this some other
0: time. Okay, okay. Because
1: we have more to talk about
0: on that, but okay. We got to move on. We got to keep moving. Well, before we before we do move on, we want to thank our new supporters. <laughs> this week, we have three new supporters this week. And all of them are supporters, monthly, new monthly sustaining supporters through Patreon. First, there is Lynn, uh, then there is Barbara, and then there then there is John, who made a particularly generous uh, donation there. So we'd like to just thank all of you. That matters. That means a lot to us. It's incredibly helpful. So Lynn, Barbara, and John, thank you so very much. And if Thank you, you, guys. And if you'd like to help Keep the show going. You can do exactly what Lynn, Barbara, and John did last week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon, or we have a PayPal donation link there. And every donation helps, no matter what the amount is greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. And, of course, we'd also really appreciate it if you could check out our sponsors, use those promo codes and and, and URLs there, and also help us out by sharing episodes, new show, tweets, and, tweets and posts. I can say that. And leaving reviews and ratings of the show on your podcast app. Thanks a lot for your support. We really do appreciate it. Okay. You know, Jay, a few years ago, the city of Seattle uh, did something, well, I think that a lot of people on the left, and myself included, uh, were sort of looking forward to. We're glad that happened. They enacted a city ordinance that gradually raised the minimum wage uh, in the city of Seattle, which is now, currently between eleven and fifteen dollars an hour, depending on the size of the employer, and all the employers are going to be required to pay at least fifteen dollars an hour by 2021. And at that time, how's that working out for him? Well, you know, at that time, right? Liberals like me hailed it as a victory in the fight for fifteen, a blow against inequality, and conservatives like you warned that it would drive down the employment and hours, and thereby by essentially hurting the people it was trying to help. Now, an early study of Seattle's minimum wage, which we actually discussed on the show a while back, found that it was mostly a wash, uh, a result that didn't really satisfy either side of the debate. But this week, a new study came out. This study was published by a group, of University of Washington economists who were commissioned by the city. And the study concluded that the average low wage worker in Seattle has lost around $125 a month due to the minimum wage hike. Now, conservatives were quick to tout these results, while liberals were just as quick to poke holes in the methodology. So Jay, what's your take on this?
1: Well, again, I'd say sort of, uh, I I told you so. Uh, And it's sort of a, a commonsensical sort of, sort of thing thing. Um, I'd want to, I'd point out that I, what I think is interesting and, and a good thing uh, is when this uh, Seattle has this minimum wage, it set up this review. Uh, and again, this is a, a review uh, commissioned by the city uh, essentially to, to see how's it going. And and much as I dislike sort of the merits of, of just increasing the minimum wage, I think including this piece of it uh, is, is really a, a pretty good thing of the check on how's this working. Um, uh, and, and it might be uh, good to expand that to other, other government programs. Uh, but, but again, I think this, this comes down to sort of a common sense, uh, sort of situation. I mean, you, you don't, if, if businesses only have uh, so much money, uh, can only charge so much for their product and and remain competitive, uh, something's got to, give. And if they need to pay more to their workers, well, then what they'll have to do is cut back hours for other workers. And those people who are working are going to have to work harder or they take steps towards uh, greater automation, um, which is what we're seeing, you know, particularly in the, the fast food, uh, area. So, uh, it, it's not surprising and, and I'm not going to say, aha, this is, uh, this absolutely proves it, but this is, is evidence that, um, that this is what what happens when you have these these minimum wage uh, laws going to effect. Also, the other thing that I would point out is that the study that the uh, the the Economist did was based on uh, comparison to a sort of similarly situated uh, city, uh, other similar economic um, uh, situations, so that you know as best as possible, uh, the only differing factor between the two is the minimum. Wage. Wage Now, that's always, that's always a tough thing to do in these kind of real world uh, reviews because there are so many factors, so many uh, inputs, uh, so many changes when you're comparing the economy of, of you know, one city versus another. Uh, but I think they, they did their best to, to narrow that out so that we can you know, focus just on that, that one factor.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, obviously my take's a little bit different on it. You would probably wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, what you call simple common sense, I call an article of faith on the right that is certainly open to question. Uh, and a couple things I'll point out. Number one, this, this result goes against a number of past studies. So it's a very different result, which in part is why it got so much play, because different results always get more play. Secondly, uh, this data is not available to anyone else. It hasn't gone through the scientific peer review process yet. So it's very, no one has been able to look at their numbers and check their numbers. And as people on the right would tell you when talking about climate change scientists, they would say, well, they're always cooking a book. So I don't know, but. Oh, absolutely. But the, absolutely. I agree with that. Being, yeah, the point being peer reviews, very important.
1: Go ahead. Yeah.
0: Third, maybe most important, the study excluded, large employers with locations outside of Seattle and around 40% of workers in the state of Washington work in businesses with multiple locations. So, you know, there's all that, all that involved. Now that's not me saying that this, this result is, is worthless. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that this is one data point, right? One result. And like any study, it has its flaws. It's incredibly difficult. You know, once you get outside of the lab, it's incredibly difficult to do these things. So we add this to the mix and we say, well, okay, that's that's one more data point. And we take a look, you know, and keep on doing more studies. Like, for instance, Arizona not too long ago enacted a minimum wage hike. The entire state of Washington has one. And so once you get a whole bunch of different research methodologies, different researchers, different areas and if they start to coalesce around a common finding, that's when you can start to have a reasonable amount of faith in that sort of thing, which is why, for instance, you know, when 90 something percent of the climate change studies say one thing, you can have a reasonable amount of faith in it. You know, for instance, I'll uh, just to use an example off the top of my head. So I don't <laughs> Just a think random example. Exactly. I don't think people on the left should discount this study. I think that, you know, they should say, okay, well, this is important evidence, and we're going to take a look at the, the flaws in the methodology, just like people on the right would take a look at the flaws of the math methodology of those on the left. That's, that's what makes the scientific method, I think, the best way to advance knowledge. And if we really care, I don't care whether you're on the right or the left. If you really care about doing what works best, helping especially poor people, you know, victims of economic inequality, well, then you care about the data. And while you certainly don't put your ideology entirely aside, the most important thing is not whether it's a liberal policy or a conservative policy, but does this policy work? And so that's, I, oh, You know Absolutely. that's still an open question, and I think this is a valuable piece of information. And I hope we see the data uh, subject to peer review and opened up, so we can kind of get a better sense of this as as it goes on.
1: I, I will I will throw out one uh, just little, you know, aside because I I got I I don't not gloat, but again, how under, under to defend the idea that this is sort of the common sense result. How how it, you know would liberals uh, on what basis uh, would they believe that paying people more uh, would result in more employment?
0: Well, I, I think the, what liberals would point to are uh, a number of studies prior to this that suggest that it actually did help lower income people. So instead of pointing to a theory, okay. liberals mean, you know, I would point it to help, it helps the, the lower data. income
1: people who keep their jobs and and work those same hours. But I'm saying in terms of growing the growing the so to speak.
0: Sure. Well, I, Uh, I, again, I think, I think that liberals would point to studies that say that not only it helps people who keep their jobs, but it helps low-income people more generally, and which is what a lot of these previous studies said. And so now, of course, when those studies came out, conservatives critiqued them, uh, uh, understandably so, right? Because that didn't fit with their theoretical understanding of things, and so to me, it's the well, question it of didn't well, didn't fit
1: with the real world understanding of the guy who lost his job either. But well, that's you know. it,
0: that's what's called anecdotal evidence. But I mean, so I think in this case that both conservatives and liberals should diminish the importance of their theories and focus a lot more on what the data is telling us here. And I think that's something you can okay. probably agree All right. well, with. Right?
1: I, I know I, I agree with you a hundred percent of Lee. We should keep focused and keep watching the, keep watching the data and keep watching this as it evolves.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Well, on that note of agreement, it is time for what we're reading, where we step back from the usually crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about, you know, the more in-depth thoughtful things that we're reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Jay, uh, what do you got for us this week?
1: Well, you I'll tell you, I'll do something, something a little bit different. Nothing from the Wall Street Journal this year, or this week, and uh, surprisingly, both of my pieces come from the, uh, the New York Times. Whoa! Uh, one actually was, uh, again, it was reprinted, printed in part in the New York Times and in National Review. Uh, so, so that ought to tell you something. Uh, and that was uh, a piece by Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institute, which we mentioned last week, uh, about uh, the essentially upper middle class and it's and it was entitled stop pretending you're not rich um, and Reeves hits on what is is really one of the, the big points for me uh, is that the the real friction in our country uh, the real divide uh, it, it's not it's over race it's not over gender or, or sexual preference or religion it's class uh, and this is something that uh, Charles Murray has argued and uh, Reeves and, and in fact cites Murray uh, a number of other people have, have cited this and the reason it's it's so weird and, and it's such a it's it's the one thing we can't talk about uh, because we uh, we sort of all believe we live in a classless society uh, or a, a very class mobile society and, and his point is that's becoming less so uh, the classes are becoming more stratified uh, and uh, it's not—it's not all about money. It's although money is a big part of it, it, it has to do with education and and access to resources and and uh, so many other things. Uh, but I—I I highly recommend that. Um, uh, again, it's sort of of a piece with what I've been preaching for a while now—that uh, that's that's our biggest divide and that's the the biggest issue I think we really have to look at. The other piece, and this is—I mentioned this because it's sort of really. Related um, was also in the New York Times uh, by Jessica Bennett, uh, talking about uh, failure and a program at uh, Brown University, uh, which is geared towards teaching students how to fail—not um, how to fail, uh, uh, mind you—but how to deal with failure. I guess is probably the better way to put it: how to learn from failure. Uh, um, and it, it's very much the sort of you know thing that you hear a lot. And, and it talks about uh, kids who go to uh, elite uh, schools, or or go in, end up into uh, elite workplaces, and you know, they may have had uh, a history where they are uh, a straight A student and and successful, in, in all these various uh, endeavors, and they you know get into that that bigger pond, and and uh, uh, find something that they can't do, or at least can't do easily, uh, and it, it's talking about kids um, dealing with that, and and the connection that struck me. So yeah, do you see the connection yet? See where I'm going with
0: this? Uh, yeah, I think I do. But go
1: ahead. Go ahead. Um, is is I really think there there is some something going on, and, and it struck me that, um, again, there's a always discussion of of male privilege or white privilege or 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 something like that. And I think again, the real issue we're talking about is is class privilege, and being able to fail uh, is sort of a I think a, a an upper. Middle class privilege. Um, no one, no one writes these articles uh, for for the the kids who can't, in, can't get into college or get into community college uh, who are coming from some uh, poor rural area. Uh, but you know, Brown University sets up these these programs to help uh, its students deal with them. And and then I'm not I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think it's it's good that that Brown has these that that program and is is focusing on that. But but I do think and I'm just kind of posing the question is, is that, you know, the ability to fail and fail gracefully or fail without uh, the terrible consequences? Is that sort of an upper middle class privilege? Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: So I I, I think
1: that's again, I'm not saying I have any solutions or or, uh, to it uh, or that there even needs to be one other than uh, maybe we recognize and especially especially one of these these class issues is uh, recognizing that. uh, that ability to fail uh, might not be there for uh, the kid who's grown up in some some uh, poor coal town, uh, same as it is for the, the Brown University freshmen.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point and two great articles. And of course, we will have links to those uh, on, the, uh, on the politicsguys.com website for this episode. Okay, so my recommendation this week is a new podcast, uh, The Policy Scout. Now, uh, usually I just spend a few minutes telling you about it, but I thought, you know, instead of doing that, why don't I actually get in touch with the person who does the show uh, and, and, and have her do it? hurts her in this case. And so I did that. I got in touch with the creator and host of the show, uh, Krista Mathaney, and so she could tell you about her show. And here is our very short talk about that. I'm here with Kristen Matheny, creator and host of The Policy Scout, my favorite new podcast. Now, I'm betting Politics Guys listeners will also really enjoy it, and so I asked Kristen to come on the show to introduce her and The Policy Scout, The Politics Guys listeners. So thanks for coming on the show, Kristen.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You know, so I just thought we'd start by, uh, maybe you could tell everyone when and why you decided to start The Policy Scout.
2: Well, um I'm sure most of your listeners will appreciate this, I'm sure. Um, you know, I got really fed up with media coverage uh, of the of the last election cycle. The last couple of years have been pretty uh, pretty terrible, um, very partisan, very biased. And you know, I, I I just graduated with my master of Public administration from the University of Southern California. And so I have a background in policy. And you know, at a residency out there, I was talking to some of my classmates and we were all just kind of complaining. We were from all over the political aisle uh, spectrum, different sides of the aisle. And we were just all complaining about how partisan everything is, how we can't seem to get a straight story and how there are these huge issues that are really relevant um, that we're just dying for knowledge about. Um, and we were having a hard time trying to get something that wasn't edi- editorialized. So, as an avid podcast listener, I never in a million years thought that I would ever have my own. I was kind of a happy listener. And I, I just decided, actually, on the plane ride home from that residency from Los Angeles to Fort Lauderdale, I just kind of decided, you know, maybe, There needs to be another podcast because there aren't many of us out there, you know, kind of doing the bipartisan balance thing. You know, maybe there needs to be another one um, to explore these big policy issues. So so that's kind of where that got started.
0: Well, I think that was a, a great decision that sounds very similar to sort of uh, our origin story, as it were, just being fed up with or with with not having those sort of alternatives and just deciding, well, I could just create my own. And you did. And it is definitely uh, I think you're doing a great job with it. So could you talk a little bit about the sort of things that you cover on the Policy Scout and your approach to covering them?
2: Oh, sure. So what I try to do is um, I try to cover topics that um, some of the topics I know a lot more about than others. Some of them I don't have a lot of knowledge of, or maybe I thought I had knowledge of them. And then you start to research them and you realize you don't really know anything. Um, so I most of the topics I've chosen so far um, in the five episodes are are um, topics that are relevant, but they're sort of big policy issues, and they're not necessarily something that that you see pop up in the news. So I try to feature topics that should feature that should be featured more in the news. Things like um, Common Core, um, freedom of speech on campuses, um, bot media bias. I did an episode about cybersecurity. This next one is about um, the uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs because it's just tragically underreported, um, you know, the mess that's going on there. And I try to feature issues that, you know, aren't necessarily partisan issues, but perhaps the solutions that are proposed are from, you know, either side of the aisle. And so my approach is I kind of try to remove all the the filters and the bias, and I try to just give people facts. Um, and I... You know, it's a little different from your podcast. Um, you cover the, you know, stuff that's in the news. Um, I try to cover stuff that's maybe a bigger policy issue. So it's it's not quite like um, your podcast, but it's it's it, I would say it's it's a nice compliment.
0: Exactly. Um.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, what now? You said you're you're five episodes in at this point. So I imagine you have some plans for the the future of of the policy scout. I wonder if you could maybe share some of those.
2: Oh, I just, well, right now, you know, we're, it's, it's a brand new podcast and, um, I'm trying to expand my listener base and I'm, you know, I'm really, I would say that there is no, um, you know, there, there's no real demographic. I've found that, you know, a lot of the people that I know who listen to the policy scout, they're Democrats, they're Republicans they're whatever. Um, and a lot of the people who I don't know, you know, the people I don't know who are listening to the policy scout are kind of from all over the map. So I'm really encouraged by that because that was kind of the goal. I wanted everybody to be able to listen to it and, you know, sort of um, with fresh eyes. And so, you know, I'm just looking to grow that, Um, you know, like I had mentioned to you earlier, I'm not much of a tech guru, so I'm, you know, I figured the content is good. So, you know, I'm looking to kind of expand um, that way. I'm looking to, you know, improve my social media outreach because I don't know much about that. And um, we, I have a wonderful professional editor who helps me with the editing uh, resonate recordings. They're awesome. And, um, you know, I try to thank them on every episode, but yeah, there's just to grow and develop and, you know, just like you guys, we'll see where this, how far this goes. And if there's still an audience for it in a year or two, I think that would be fantastic.
0: Oh, I can't imagine it wouldn't be. Like I said, I think, I think it's great. I can see a, a long and very uh, prosperous future for the policy scout. At least that's, that's how things should be, I think. So where can people find you on uh, online to show all that?
2: Oh, um, well, so, uh, the policy scout is featured. Uh, we have a website, the policy scout.com, www.thepolicyscout.com. Uh, we have a Facebook and a Twitter account. If you want to follow us there, both are at the policy scout easy. And then, um, all the episodes are released on iTunes, uh, Google play stitcher and, um, on soundcloud as well. So you can find the policy scout, um, on any of those platforms and, Um, of course, everything's linked on the website. So if you just go to the website, there's a lot of good info on there. And I, like you guys, I try to post interesting articles and, you know, information I find about the topics. So it's, it's a good place to start.
0: Well, I definitely think it's worth, uh, listeners, I think it's worth subscribing and and checking out Kristen's show. Like I said, it is is definitely my favorite new podcast. And Kristen, thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us all about it. That's it for this politics guys episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. The first is dollar shave club where new members get their first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping. And after that, your razors are just a few bucks a month. It's a $15 value for only five bucks. And to take advantage of this great offer, go to dollarshaveclub.com TPG that's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Next is seat geek, the fast and easy way to get great tickets to live, events at a great price. And Palto Sky's listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com and enter promo code Politics Guy. It's all one word and no S, just plain Politics Guy. Enter that promo code at Politics Guy. Get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com, our Facebook page, where you can message us. And where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash Politics Guys page. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. We'll be back with a new show next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.